Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Music Industry 360 podcast. We're back after a bit of a hiatus, and we appreciate your patience and understanding. We've been hard at work over the past, uh, looks like to be a year since we've done the last podcast. I'm excited to say that we're going to do these podcasts much more often now. And I'm excited about the various topics that we're going to discuss, as well as how we're going to do this podcast going forth. I particularly like stories and individuals that have been in the music industry for a while. And I think hearing some of their experiences and in the process, also giving some great feedback and knowledge to everybody, I think is going to be great. The voice behind the microphone is myself, Jorge Brea, founder and CEO of Symphonic. Um, As a CEO, I have the pleasure and the honor of being able to work not only with a great team, but also work with incredible record labels, artists, managers, distributors all over the world. We really strive to do the best that we can to ensure that not only we build great technology, provide a solid customer service experience, but in general, also give as much education as possible. So this is what this podcast is going to aim to do. Um, I'm also here joined by a great co-host. I'll let her do her own introduction. Thank you, Jorge. Um, I'm Melanie Durantis, and I'm the management assistant here at Symphonic. It's kind of like a hybrid position. Um, I work with a lot of the executives and colleagues on industry research, like release uploads and databases and stuff like that. So I get to to hang out and talk to a lot of the people in the company, and I get to do different things every day. So it's awesome. She's awesome, folks. Um, some of you may have interacted with Melanie, so I'm happy that she's here to... Uh guest host this. So let's let's bring in our guest of honor. I'd like to introduce everyone to Randall Foster, VP BizDev, all around amazingly cool human being. I noticed something. This is the, the Music Biz 360 podcast, but it's been about 365 days since I've been on this podcast. So <laughs> since I broke it for a year, you brought me back? That's how we did it, man. You know, it, it can only get better from here. You know what I mean? So All right. All right. I'm into it. Let's go. You know, Randall, you've been in, in the game for a minute. Why don't you talk a little bit about your history? Like, what have you done in music? And, and some of the, you know, listeners of the previous episode might have gotten that, but I figured let's just rehash it and, uh, and, and talk about it. And before we actually even do that, we're going to be talking today about just kind of getting back to normalcy, having these types of conversations that are natural and, and that are helpful in challenging times like COVID. But uh I'll turn it over to you, Randall. Like, why don't you give us a little bit of history of what you've done? Awesome. Well, so let's see. I started piano at the age of eight. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, I'm a third generation music educator. I was, I was, my father was a composer and an educator, and his his uh, actually fourth generation. His mother was was an educator, and his grandmother was a music educator. And so I always had music in my veins and knew it was something I was going to do um, <clears throat> as I was. Uh, coming up through college, I started putting myself through school as a DJ. And I realized really quickly that while educating is something that comes really natural to me, it wasn't really my calling to be in a classroom, um, at least not full time. Uh, For me, it was more of a it was more of a passion. So so following the DJ uh, success I had had in the Midwest, I actually after graduating from the University of Kansas, I moved to Miami, Florida, and and was a graduate teaching assistant there in their music business program. Um, while I was there over those two years, I had the pleasure of, of doing a lot of, uh, a lot of DJing, a lot of, and a lot of uh, kind of side hustle work um, for MTV networks down in South beach. 
And, uh, and I also had the pleasure of running the athletic bands um, as one of the three leaders, three uh, graduate student leaders of the athletic bands there. So, so, you know, I was at some pretty monumental football games in the early 2000s when Miami still had a football team. Right. No, you knew. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I got done with that, all of the freelance work I'd done at MTV kind of came home to roost for me and they, and they had a part-time gig for me. And I went over there. My degree in music business, being a master's degree in music business, was very heavy on the intellectual property side. And they had a big intellectual property project they needed assistance with. And so I went there and, uh, and during my time there, we, uh, we ended up doing cue sheets for the, for the performance royalties of uh, songs utilized in about seven years worth of promo videos that had not previously been reported. And so <clears throat> I, I basically got thrown to the wolves and, uh, and was helping guide a team of about 20 other production assistants in doing this research and, and putting these documents together uh, to avoid further legal harassment for the company. Um, during that time there, it became pretty apparent that not being a fluent Spanish speaker, South Beach was not going to be a great place for me to stay um, and grow in the music industry. And I had a very good friend who happened to be at a company in Nashville, Tennessee, or just south of Nashville, actually, called Naxos. And, and I had heard the word Maxos and I knew the company sort of, but I really didn't know what they did because they were a classical record label and distributor. Um, what I've come to found is that I had about 25 Naxos CDs in my collection. I just didn't know it. And, uh, and so I uh, interviewed for a job there and I moved to Nashville and I joined Naxos in a sales marketing role where I was selling an online digital streaming resource um, and this was back in 2005. So if you think about where streaming was at at that time, it was very, very much ahead of the game. And uh, so I started out in the streaming resource side of things there. And I quickly moved into licensing because of my interest in intellectual property <clears throat> and, in, and in the business of licensing. And, and uh, that yielded more exposure on the business development side of things. And I kind of ended up where I had a hand in almost everything we were doing um, in some way, shape, or form. It was, it was really, really a great education for me in my formative years. Um, spent nearly 10 years there where I was able to work in physical distribution deals and work on strategic partnerships and things like that. And so it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and at the end of those 10 years, um, you know, as I was starting to look around the industry, I realized that I had a very myopic viewpoint. If you looked at my resume, I was a classical music guy. And the reality was I was still coming home and spinning vinyl at night. So I wasn't a classical music guy. And, uh, and I needed to do something to expand my, uh, my acumen so that I could be more of a um, cross-genre um, threat in this industry. And so I had a great opportunity to join a really hungry, growing music publishing company called Olay Music Publishing in 2014. And I jumped at it and I joined Olay as the head of their creative sync and licensing department, where I was working with all of our owned copyrights and helping make new copyrights and pitch those for film and TV and advertising and video games. And, and really had a great time there working with some amazing songwriters, some folks you might have heard of, like Timbaland, et cetera, um, the rock band Rush. It's, uh, it was really, it was really a baptism by fire for me, but it was really, really fantastic. And I, I truly believe that the team I was working with um, when I first got there and in those early years at Olay 
was was I think the most competitive publishing team um, in the business with regards to acquisitions, with regards to creative um, growth. You know, in the ten years prior to us getting there, and as a team, they'd had one country number one. While we were there, I think we had something like twenty-four number ones, and so um, pretty incredible time there. And uh, you know, like most things. I had some fantastic accomplishments and I'd done the things I've gone there to do. And towards the end of that experience, um, I met and befriended uh, Jorge, our, our, our podcast host hey, uh, hey. through a mutual contact who also worked at the company who I had played in a band with back in the uh, mid 1990s. Now I'm dating myself. I'm, I'm old. So, so understand that in the mid 1990s, I was, getting out of high school, going into college. And, um, and so he and I played in a band together and we'd reconnected on that front. And he uh, facilitated an introduction to Jorge and to Symphonic. And of course I knew the company, but I didn't know enough about it. And over the coming year, um, we really took a deep dive on what items Symphonic could be doing um, that they weren't doing currently or that they weren't doing proficiently currently. And, um, and it seems that, that I created a position for myself in that year. And I'm uh, infinitely thankful for that position and for, uh, for the trust Jorge's placed in me with this Nashville operation. Definitely. And we're stoked to have you. And it's kind of cool, actually. Melanie uh, was also a Nashville resident. She uh, came down to Florida uh, and, and so forth, but she's got some, uh, some roots up there as well. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, Randall, that was a lot of amazing stuff. Um, thank you for that history. I was curious more um, in your beginning stages, like did you want to be an artist yourself or was that kind of just like always in the background and you wanted to pursue you know, intellectual property or the music industry in the background? I think I, I was more in tune with being a producer than an artist, former, like formally. Um, I love performing. I love DJing. I, I still love DJing when I get a chance, hence my holiday party performance this last December. Um, it, you know, it's like a drug. It really is. You know, when you, when you have a crowd, you know, reacting to the music you're playing for them, whether you're playing it on a guitar, you know, or a banjo or, or two turntables and a microphone, it, it's really, really fun. And it's incredible. And you, you understand why it's easy to understand why artists don't want to walk away when they get older, because it's, it's really, really hard to, to mimic that kind of that high you feel when you're performing. And so, you know, I loved performing as a DJ, um, but I was a very adequate producer, not a great producer. And um, what I really enjoyed was helping other artists to succeed. And so, <clears throat> you know, one of one quick stop that along the path for me was I, I helped a friend of mine form a artist management and booking company when I was at Miami. And I worked with some pretty great DJ talent um, from the West coast in, in, in a management booking scenario. And, uh, and, and we had a really, really great run there with people like DJ Darcy and Scooter and Lavelle and other folks that were, that were kind of bubbling. They weren't Tiesto, but they were, but they were, you know, they were working as many nights a year as they wanted to work and they were making great money. And so it would became really apparent to me that what I really love where my passion lies is in, is in helping others succeed in that musical space, not necessarily being the, the star of the show. One of the, one of the reasons too, why I like when Randall kind of explains, you know, a little bit of like his journey and his history and music is, you know, 
I tell people all the time that the music industry is sort of like a career ladder, you know what I mean? And, you know, you can definitely start in one industry, but move into others and build a great network. Um, and I think it's exciting for anybody that's listening, that's like interested in getting into the business, so to speak, to be able to like say that, you know, I can do distribution, I can do licensing, I can do publishing. And, and really everyone kind of wears those multiple hats and kind of starts to realize and know about all these different industries just because you get so infatuated with it, you know? Um, so I love that story of your journey because it's pretty similar to a lot of our, uh, our old, uh, us old folks that have been doing this for a little while, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's been fun. And the, the neat thing about what I'm doing now is that it's kind of an amalgamation of the last 16 years worth of experience all happening at once. So I, I'm able to dip into my toolbox and pull out items, you know, that had formerly gathered a bit of dust. So Randall, you know, COVID-19 is pretty much like the word of the year, right? So that's obviously impacted things a little bit. What's, what's it been like working from home for you? How has Nashville as a scene changed? And, and for those that don't remember, I mean, March got off to an incredibly rough start with the, you know, the tragedy and the tornado uh, up there. So how's Nashville doing and what have you seen uh, of people there that, you know, showing the perseverance and so forth? Yeah. I mean, Nashville, Nashville is wounded, you know, Nashville in, in March, as you said, Jorge, that, that awful tornado wiped through Germantown and East Nashville and came within about 50 yards of our office windows. And for some reason, our office was spared while, you know, one of the greatest music venues in the, in the city was completely destroyed. Um, so we were reeling from that. We'd only gotten back to work about two weeks and then COVID-19 hit. And so uh, it's been tough. Nashville is a city that is filled with obviously lots of talented artists, um, but lots of gig workers and gig workers depend on gigs and you know bar closings and club closings and the lack of the ability to tour and things really hurts people's bottom line <clears throat> and so as a whole i would say the music industry here we're, we're limping along we're doing okay but um and people are really resilient but it's been a really tough five or six months um you know things that we thought were never going to go away you know the parts of the industry that always made money like touring touring was the place to be prior to COVID. i mean like Touring was con consistently over the past two decades growing at, at an exponential rate halted to a close. And I've got friends that literally have had to walk away from their offices and go home and start getting scrappy about ways to, uh, ways to make money. And, uh, <clears throat> and it really stinks. But the really neat thing is to see the innovation that's coming from it and to see the people that are pulling together. The live stream side of things is, is rampant now in Nashville. Our local music industry um, news here, uh, a service called Music Row, for, a, for the longest time, and I think they still are, was publishing a calendar of, of live streams. And it's everything from like Dirks Bentley and the biggest country acts in the world to people you've never heard of, but they're getting on and they're getting on in a multitude of places, whether it be Facebook Live, YouTube Live, Twitch, they're getting on and they're and they're they're actively engaging that fan base, and they're forced to in a way they've never been forced to before. And uh, and I think those who adapt are going to succeed here. And I think those who don't adapt are going to have a really tough go. And even when we get back to the 
touring and we get back to the fact that people can get back out on the road and get back to the studios and all that, there's going to be some people that, that tried to wait this thing out. And I think it's going to be really detrimental to their careers, unfortunately. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, you know, you kind of touched on it, the live stream version. Um, but how are artists making money? Um, cause there's no payout for live streaming or, or things like that. You know, exposure is great, but it doesn't pay right. Not yet. So how do you suggest that people go about turning it into, into royalties, into some kind of check? Well, like I said, it's, it, it's really, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of new thought coming in, in, in this space. Um, and there are ways to get paid in live streaming. It's just those technologies are kind of sleepers at this point. There's a lot of people that, that just simply don't know about them. Um, you know, there's a company that, that, that I'm looking to work with here that, that I'm really, really a big fan of called my set music that has monetized the live stream experience and actually added a request function to it. Um, which is really fantastic. And this, this was a live music company that pivoted to live stream when, when all of the problems hit us in April. Um, you know, obviously there's Venmo and other ways to ask for, for money. And, uh, and, and I think that, you know, more than ever, um, you know, artists have got to be good at the art of the ask now. Um, I, I think it's just, it's just never been more important for artists to lean on their fan base and, and really ask them to help support them because, because, you know, this is how music has been taken care of for history, for millennia. Music has always been about patrons and, and, and creators. And if you go back to Mozart, Mozart had the Habsburgs who paid for his entire existence you know, the Habsburg family ran most of Western Europe through a, a great part of, you know, the, the 1700s, 1600s, and, and, and they funded the music that was happening at that time. So it's no different, you know. And about a decade ago, Amanda Palmer, who is a great independent artist, um, formerly of the Dresden Dolls, did a, uh, did a TED Talk, and it was called The Art of the Ask. And it was really all about if you, if you can learn how to ask your audience to help you, and you have a really engaged audience who loves you, they will help. And, and she famously did a Kickstarter where she was trying to raise, I think it was 50 grand to go in the studio. And she raised something like a million dollars off her fan base. And it was the first time we ever saw fans really step up and support an independent artist. And I think <clears throat> the fans are here. And I think that the supports here, I think people have just got to get past the, the presumed um, embarrassment of asking. And I think if they do, I think that there are good things that can come. Uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when, when I have gone to a show and bought merch or when I've supported an artist financially more so than just listening to them on Spotify or more so than just, you know, picking their CD up when it comes out, I feel more invested in the artist. And so, you know, when touring comes back around, these are, these are the first people that are going to buy the tickets. They're going to buy the meet and greet packages when things come back. And so I think that it's a really great time, you know, to engage in that space and it's tough. And, it, and I don't want to underscore how tough it is. I spoke with an artist manager yesterday who spent the majority of this summer getting all of her artists onto Patreon because Patreon is a, is a platform that will allow those artists to make money. 
it will allow them to really engage their fans with unique content that's only available there. And I think that's the key. I think people have got to get scrappy. And it's also cool too, like what Bandcamp's been doing with the, uh, you know, the no commission Fridays and, you know, I've been buying vinyl. I'm like a vinyl junkie, of course. Uh, if you follow my uh, Instagram, and for those that know me, uh, you'll see that I like to just buy random lots here and there. But I've been especially just checking out records on a weekly basis on Bandcamp because it's really, really going to those that, that need it when they can't tour and do all that. So that's that's pretty awesome for sure. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple different platforms on there, Randall, but what would you say artists should focus on, like, if they had one thing, one or two things that they had time to do, because some people are, are still working and stuff like that, and it takes a lot of time to make a record, but what would you say that people focus on? Well, I, I think <clears throat> the, the good and bad of this time we have right now is it, it, it's like the great reset, Right. Like we, we can't go out and, and, and tour. We can't do the things the way we've always done them. So it's a, it's a really good time for artists to kind of get their, get their ducks in a row and get their, get their, get their house in order. And so, you know, I, I think <clears throat> more so than ever, I think content needs to be created and it needs to be released. And it doesn't matter what kind of content it is. It can be YouTube content. It can be TikTok content. It's got to be something that engages the audience and keeps the audience engaged. And, and if they do that, I think they're going to be fine. Um, you know, we, I don't know about globally, but I saw with my bands that I've worked very closely with and my artists and my labels, there was a brief pullback moment where everybody said, Oh gosh, we're not going to release our music. We can't tour for the summer. Why would we release our music? And slowly everybody has kind of come around to the idea that, you know, we have a captive audience at home. You know, the YouTube numbers speak for themselves. People are at home consuming media. So the question is, do you want to sit back and wait for things to open back up? Or do you want to go ahead and release that media and capture some of that fan base and that audience? And I think, I think that regular releases need to be happening right now. You know, I think that, you know, you know, getting into your socials and really shoring up your social media now more than ever, you've got time. I do realize that a lot of folks have had to go and, you know, start doing driving for DoorDash and doing other things um, to pay the bills. But I also know that they're also not out on the weekends touring every weekend. And so there is that that offset of a little bit of time. And they can use this time to really get their their house in order so that when things open back up, their position for more success than they ever were in the past. Definitely. So, you know, part of this podcast is also, um, you know, not just trying to be conversational and get people to hear stories, but, you know, trying to be helpful and something that you and I talk about a lot and something that everyone talks about a lot and is all over social media. It's marketing, playlisting and getting yourself out there. So, um, I love asking you these questions because I think you articulated, you know, really well. And, you know, since we deal with a lot of artists, record labels that are really, really working hard and trying to get themselves out there and doing great music. And unfortunately, sometimes having the, the tough challenge of getting playlisted, you know, what are your thoughts on all that? And how do you kind of like view the world of Spotify playlisting and just in general marketing? What do artists need to do, and et cetera? Well, I thought that I could just click that link in Facebook and pay nineteen ninety nine, and I'd have face I'd have playlists. That's right. There's tons of those services out there. So, uh, okay. First of all, don't click on any of those services and don't give them your money. They're a that's right. Yeah. Um, 
there's a lot to unpack there. We could talk another hour on that alone. But we'll talk about maybe like five to ten. <laughs> Let me back up and, 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 and just reiterate my good friend Jay Gilbert's standard line, which is playlists are not a marketing plan. Yeah. Um, go the reality on, is. Before you go on, actually, Jay's, you know, blog, weekly or daily newsletter, I believe, um, it's just incredible. So, like, if you haven't subscribed to it, why don't you tell me? Every people? Friday, it's called My Morning Coffee. And Jay's a good friend and a, and a, and a crack strategist. He is, he is, uh, and he's a, he's actually a fantastic photographer as well. So I hope he hears this. Um, Jay, the check better be in the mail, buddy. Um, but the reality is, you know, playlists are, 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 are the trophy. They're, they're, they're not the goal. You know, the goal is winning the game. After you win the game, you get the trophy, right? Let's go back to high school athletics or something. You know, let's think about this realistically how do you win the game well i think winning the game is having an engaged audience who will show up at every one of your shows and buy 50 dollars worth of merch i think that winning the game is having that audience those thousand true fans who are going to follow you all the way through your career so that when you're 50 and you release a retrospective uh, album for fun you know that you're still going to have revenue coming in that's winning the game um you know once you won the game once you have that audience you have that fan base engaged and and with you lockstep the playlists come the playlist there is no magic formula for the playlist you know if you want the magic formula it is have a ton of instagram followers that are all super engaged 10 percent engagement on instagram have a massive massive quantity of tiktok uh users utilizing your content regularly massive 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 engagement there don't forget YouTube. YouTube is the number two search engine in the world. It's also the number one search engine for music. It's the place people go to find new music. If you don't have a really great YouTube presence, you're, you're leaving money on the table. Facebook, obviously, Twitter, obviously. All, all of these surfaces need your, need your attention. And the other thing I want to hammer down is that Spotify playlists aren't the end-all be-all because Amazon's got great playlists. So does, so does Apple. So does Tidal. So does every other subsequent service out there. And so, yes, New Music Friday is pretty cool and it's really amazing. But I've seen artists get on a New Music Friday and fumble the follow through and never make it back onto a real top editorial playlist because they didn't have the audience built. The worst thing you can do is get onto a great playlist with no audience because the algorithm will see that and it will grade you as such. So I think it's really important I don't like talking playlists. I don't promise playlists. Anybody who promises you playlists is lying, patently lying. It's patently false. There's not, there's not a secret button we push that makes the playlist happen. There's a million things that have to happen and a, and a million stars that have to align. And yes, if you, if you have great music, that's, that's the beginning. Like you have to start with great music. It really starts with the song. But if you don't have the follow through, if you don't have the fans, if you don't do all the things you're supposed to do, you got to cross the T's and dot the I's. And once you do all of that and they are all voraciously consuming your music, playlists won't even be a concern. I mean, do you think Billie Eilish asks about playlists? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what right. I mean? I mean, like, like those who are like the gold standard of, of, of pop or rock or any, any genre right now, do you think they care about playlists? Heck no, man. They're, they're creating content 
they're they're getting in their fans' face and, and giving their fans unique experiences. That that's how the games won. Yeah. It's not it's not it's not won by playlist. I think people think they can trick the game. They can trick the system. If I just get the playlist, then the fans will come. And there is you know there is some moderate you know truth to that. That yeah, you're gonna you're gonna get some growth out of a great a great set of playlists, whether it's user generated or, or editorial. But the reality is like, if you don't have all this other synergy happening, you know, if you don't have syncs happening and you don't have, you know, touring happening, which right now you get a break, you don't have to tour. It's okay. Um, if you don't have all these other things happening, you're, you're really, really dropping the ball. Um, and you're going to have a hard time getting to the end, getting to that playlisting point. And yeah. so I just, I, I, I've, I've literally walked away from meetings because all they would do is talk about playlists. I don't want to work with an artist that only cares about playlists. And you didn't even leave, no desire. You didn't even leave any money for, for the food or anything. You just walked, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'll definitely say a couple of things before I turn it back to Melanie here. I mean, you know, DSPs, you know, like Spotify, they want to see consistency. Like, like Randall said, you have to follow through with it. So release schedules are, are, are vital. You know, if you're doing albums, we, I love albums, but streaming is a single and EP type culture. So at least you can take an album and maybe take three or four singles and spread it out and have as much time as possible to sort of promote the album. And really lead time, a great story. If you give us like a week or give any distributor, you know, a week to be able to promote or pitch the material, it's going to be very difficult because the DSPs do want that time. And I'll also recommend that if playlists are really what you all want or what any artist wants, uh, which is totally fair, you know, utilizing Spotify for artists um, on your own as well, in addition to our efforts, is, is a helpful thing. So that way they can hear directly from you um, as well as us. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a challenge nowadays because you do have to have that sort of total package and be able to kind of be as consistent as possible, get your music out there uh, so that way you can get the attention. So. Yeah, so, I mean, you've told us about your long history in the industry, and I just think it's crazy because all the things that have been brought up today really weren't prevalent back in the day. Like, you were in distribution before, so I'd love to know what the landscape is like then versus now. Back when we, back when we uh, used buggy whips. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, when I, when I got, it was a really pivotal time when I got to Naxos and I got into the distribution space because we had just started our digital division. We had, well, Naxos is a pretty incredible company. It was founded in 1987 by a, uh, by a German expatriate who lived in, in Hong Kong. And, um, and he really went after the physical market first. Um, and he would have these budget bins that, you know, if you're old enough to remember Tower Records and all the great record stores of, of years past, they would have these sections where you could, you know, you just had 20 bucks burning a hole in your pocket. You could go spend five bucks a CD and get four CDs and have a great time. And uh, so that's really where he cut his teeth. And so, um, you know, he was, he digitized the entire catalog um, in the mid to late nineties. And he, uh, and he ended up actually, he was the first record label in the world that had the catalog streaming online, which is pretty incredible. And, and to think that classical listeners would want to stream online was even more incredible. Um, and so when I got there, we had just, you know, iTunes had just kind of come of age. iTunes was a couple of years old. And um, we, we basically had iTunes, Rhapsody. Um, Amazon had a product, but it wasn't fantastic. And there were very few others. 
There was not, there was, you know, liquid audio was still in business and doing things. It was a very new time for, for streaming and for, and, and we didn't even talk about streaming at that time. We talked about downloads. Right. So, um, you know, I showed up and, and I walked into a business that was attached to a warehouse. And in that warehouse, we had pallets of CDs. And I, I mean, stacked to the ceiling. And when we, when, when my sales guys would get a sale, the tower record sale, it'd be trucks of pallets of CDs going out the back of the, of, of the facility. And digital was really an afterthought. And we hired some really smart people who came in and started working <clears throat> on our digital um, presence. And uh, I, I remember the very first distributor we worked with was a company called IOTA. And which Jorge probably remembers. And it, it, IOTA was kind of the predecessor to the orchard. Yep. And uh, both great organizations, and uh, and we uh, we got our catalog up through them, but it was it was all an afterthought, Melanie. It um you know it, it was like that for most of the two thousands until streaming started streaming from a commercial standpoint started becoming more of a thing. Um, and we, you know we got wind of this this thing called Spotify that was about to launch and we got it we got preview access to that and I remember sitting in a meeting having having a really big internal argument about whether we wanted to participate in streaming and and I I remember weighing out the pros and cons and um you know it was decided our CEO was a real visionary and um a gentleman by the name of Jim Selby and, and Jim I remember Jim stopped everybody mid-sentence and he said, we need to be where the consumer is no matter what. Yep. If the consumer wants us as a ringtone, we need to be a ringtone. If the consumer wants to stream us, we need to be streamed. Yep. If the consumer wants to buy high-res downloads, then we need to be in the high-end download shops. And, and we approached everything from a real meet the consumer where, where, the, where, where the pavement hits the road kind of a situation, and it worked. Um, it worked really well. And I, you know, this was, this was of course after tower records had filed for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And so tower filed for bankruptcy and it was like, uh, for the physical CD distribution and record label space, it was like, uh, it was like the day JFK got shot. I mean, it, it was, it, I, I remember the day, like it was yesterday. I remember a, a whole company meeting where, where, where my CEO called us together and he said, look, the consumers haven't gone anywhere the stores have. So how do we do this? How do we get to the consumers? And he, he ran this whole ethos really the whole time we were there. And, and, and so we started instead, you know, we changed the way we warehoused instead of shipping pallets, we shipped ones and twos. We shipped CDs direct out of our, the back of our, our place direct to people's houses. You don't have to leave your house. You can just come online, shop, find what you want. We'll ship it to you. Amazon quickly became our biggest retailer. Um, I mean, it just took over everything on the physical side and, uh, and, and we pivoted. And, and so it was, it was a really, really cool time to be in the business because, you know, there were a lot of people who thought physical was never going to go away. And, um, you know, and then there were a bunch of futurists who, who, who made all consuming statements like on this day, there will be no more CDs. And the reality is the, we're somewhere in between in all reality. Um, but, but the pivot has been very real and has been really fun to be involved with and, and to see. And the really, the neatest part about it is watching vinyl come back. Yeah. That's been the we, best. <laughs> we didn't, you know, Naxos was, uh, was a hundred percent digital. We never pressed vinyl, not until about 2012. 
<clears throat> and we, we pressed our very first vinyl in 2012 and I still have the acetates downstairs in my record collection, yeah. it, you know, the original test pressings. And so it, it was a really, it was a really fascinating time to learn the digital space because we literally had to learn it from scratch. There was not a, there was not a book or a manual, you know, the, <clears throat> the Passman book, everything you need to know about the music business did not cover that. It did not go into that space. Because it's also interesting too, because, you know, I remember being, you know, Symphonic started during a time of shipping hard drives still or uh, to get music out in certain DSPs and mm-hmm. doing your back catalog. And, you know, I, I obviously remember doing some physical, you know, when I was kind of releasing music on my own on the production side um, and how much that changed. But seeing the resurgence of vinyl has been really awesome. And I want to definitely highlight two things. Um, you know, there's a great documentary if you want to know more about Tower Records. It's called uh, All Things Must Pass. It's uh, directed by Colin Hanks. It's really, really awesome. Um, and then I definitely want to send a shout out, out to uh, Mr. Jim Selby, who I agree is a, it's a visionary, awesome guy, doing great things at Concord as well. Because, uh, you know, but we're, I'm also going to get uh, the check in the mail by doing that shout out, which is good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to definitely uh, also touch on sync because, you know, that was a big part of like your history, but you also had some cool success in that area. I'd love for you to talk about kind of like that project and any kind of like quick best practices for anyone interested in, you know, getting their music synced and, and sort of like what are some no no's and, and yes, yeses, as they say. The um, <clears throat> sync is like playlists. Um, it's not, it, it, it's not the end all be all. You have to have everything right in order for the sync to be happening. And so um, I get a lot of people who say, you know, how do I write the perfect sync song? And, and my reply is always the same. It never changes. Write a perfect song. Um, you know, great music gets synced. And, and the reality is there's some things that, are, that lean more heavily into that than others. Um, you know, one thing I talk about a lot when I speak about sync, sync is big, big tent emotional concepts and and as you're creating your music you need to be thinking about does this music is this music convey an emotion that that uh that thousands of people no matter their race creed religion beliefs that they can all stand under and 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 emotionally identify with you know things like sheer joy like it doesn't matter where you're from it does it doesn't matter if you're from a third world country there's there or or from new york city there are moments in our lives that are filled with sheer joy. So if you can write a song that encapsulates sheer joy, then you have a chance to really, really grasp that feeling. And that feeling is what the music supervisors are looking to convey when they use it. The music has to help tell the story. The music, and so part of it helping tell the story is it has to be general enough that it doesn't step on the story. So, So really, really intricate verses that talk about places and names and brands are really tough because, you know, if, if you're looking at a, if there's an advertisement that's looking at your music and you start name dropping other brands, that, that advertising agency is probably going to look elsewhere because they can't have a song that's identified with other brands, whether they're in the same lane or not, um, being the swan song for that advertising agency. Um, you know, same thing with TV. You know, if you've got a TV show that's set in Montana and you've got a song that sings about Chicago, guess what? Is it, is it not going to get utilized? And the song about Chicago may make it into that one Chicago show. But as far as statistics go, as far as like 
having having musical weapons that that are more multi-purpose it's really important to make sure that you get it get those big tent concepts and, and like i said sheer joy sheer joy is one of them um you know there 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 are many though swagger is one of them swagger is one of the big catch words if you can write and swagger is not a thing I, you can't i can't draw you a picture of swagger you just know it you know it when you see it you know it's a feeling it's an emotion it's a, it's that you just got your paycheck you're looking fly, you're walking down the street, everything is great. Uh, you know, that's, that's swagger, you know, um, you know, songs about, you know, songs that make you feel comfort. Yeah. That's another, that's another space, you know, that, that you can write into the, you know, I work with a lot of songwriters on how to write better music for sync. And these are, these are all items I really hit. Um, so outside of the song, um, there's some other th- tricks you can do that will really help you out. One of which is always, always, always artists, always, when you when you punch out that uh, that that master, when you get that final mastered version of your song, go ahead and go ahead and have, have them punch out the vocals and and do an instrumental for you. You know, outside of that, the next best thing is get your stems and keep them, keep them forever. You know, music storage is cheap now. It used to cost a fortune to buy a hundred gig hard drive. Now you can buy a terabyte hard drive for way less than a hundred gig was not long ago. So, you know, buy yourself a, a five terabyte hard drive and, and load it with everything you've got and file it meticulously. Be a good steward of your own business. So when they come asking, you've got all, all the rights you need. The other thing, speaking of rights, is make sure that you and your co-writers have decided what, percentage you, what percentages you guys own. And if you can, do collaborators agreements that allow them to do syncs on your behalf and you to do syncs on their behalf. That way, if business comes in and somebody's on vacation, you don't miss out. Um, I could go on for, for years on this thing. And, and actually, you know, John Mizrahi, who runs our division, um, Bodega Sync, is, is an expert on this as well. And I'm sure he'll be on a podcast at some point, totally dedicated to it. But, um, you know, the, the biggest, the most important rule, though, is just write excellent music, write fantastic music that, that emotionally supports everybody and that's universal. And I think if you do that, I think you're going to, you're going to have some good success, you know, but listen to the TV, see what's getting synced. There's websites you can look at like TuneFind, where you can go see what the top sync songs are. Go find those and reverse engineer them. And it, it's really, you know, really the best way to do it. Cause you'll figure out what the trends are right now. If you do that. Yeah. Sync is definitely like a totally different animal. Um, Great white buffalo. Yeah, absolutely. And then I would definitely say also, you know, for folks not to shamelessly plug, it's like, I got to do this, you know, but bodegasync.com in case you want to know more info about that. Um, there is a selection process because it is a tricky aspect of the business where clearances and, you know, proper uh, cleared samples have to be obviously uh, used. But like Randall said, being organized and having everything on hand is key because one of the things that's crazy about sync is that, certain decisions have to be made like with only hours worth of time. So, um, and we aim to do that easily with Bodega by doing like one-stop licenses to be able to say that we've got all the info that we need to be able to say yes to a potential um, placement. But in the event that you're doing sync, even on your own, just be ready to respond quickly because it could mean that you might, you know, lose that in an opportunity if you don't respond. So. Yeah, Randall, I would um, be interested to know, do music supervisors use Spotify to find music? Well, I mean, Spotify is kind of unavoidable at this point. 
Yeah. Um, they have the playlist and everything like that. They use all streaming resources. There are a number of them who build playlists on Spotify regularly and they share those from their website. So you can kind of see what they're, what, what they're really digging on for the next season of X, Y, or Z. Um, but yeah, Spotify is definitely a tool that they use um, and they use it a great deal. And they're looking at the same things everybody else is looking at. You know, they're looking at the same things that the radio programming directors are looking at. They, they want to fi- find that diamond in the rough that's, that's just about to blow up. You know, that's just about to be there. And so they're looking to see what's trending. And, 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 and um, you know, I, I'll say this. Music supervisors, I think, are some of the most voracious consumers of music I've ever met in my life. And they're just experts about it. I mean, my favorite thing in the world to do, um, you know, with regards to music conferences is go to South by Southwest and tag along with music supervisors to go to shows. Because they, they'll take me to see shows and see art, see artists I've never heard of. I, I heard Billie Eilish in a room with like 50 people in South by about four years ago. You know, right. and I, I had no idea. I thought Billie Eilish was a boy. <laughs> and so, I mean, and, and it really was, I mean, you know. It, it, is it a Broadway play or is it a person, you know? And, I, and I've name dropped her twice in this thing. And the, and the funny fact is I'm not really that big of a fan, but, but her, her success is undeniable. I have actually become a pretty big fan recently, just like knowing more about her. And that's kind of, you know, just to sort of like close the loop on the whole conversation, you know, COVID has consumed us, the political climate, all the unrest has consumed us. So it's like nice to have a conversation and hopefully people that listen to this are getting something that's not only educational, but just refreshing as far as like a normal conversation. But uh, one of those things that I think is interesting about like somebody like Billy and I think artists in general, like you look at Cardi B and Bad Bunny and all those, you know, what they're really doing now on social media and to kind of get their name out there and not get their name out there, but show who they are is really kind of making social media like a diary of sorts, you know, and getting them to sort of broadcast their life. And artists that are independent can do the same thing as well. You know, you can be creative and it costs nothing to make content. You see, all these TikTok stars and all these YouTube stars and so forth. So if you really want to think about like even marketing yourself or having opportunities present themselves like sync or even more, more playlists and everything possible will help you grow during challenging times, you know, focusing on creating content for yourself that kind of puts yourself out there in a unique and fun and creative way is massively important nowadays. So thank you, Randall. Thank Until you guys. next time, man. Thanks, Randall. I feel like we'll have a part three in 2021. Is that when we re- we uh, resurrect the podcast again? <laughs> it's, a, it's an annual podcast, guys. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, I'm into it. it what's going to be exciting is to see how much has changed in the next year. Yeah, absolutely. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on getting back to normalcy in times of COVID. Before we go, we wanted to give you some updates on uh, what's going to be upcoming at Symphonic. Um, So we're in prep mode right now for the next Vibes of the Bay Festival. Every year we do this awesome festival locally in our home city here of Tampa, Florida. This year, unfortunately, due to COVID, we won't be able to put on an awesome show as we have been for the past five years. Um, But this year we decided we can't just not do something. Um, So we decided we're going to go ahead and take Vibes of the Bay to be virtual. So on September 26th, starting at 2 p.m. at vibesofthebay.com, you'll be able to get tons of information and a lineup of what we'll be showcasing to the world virtually. After Vibes of the Bay, on November 10th through the 12th, we're going to be focused on continuing our live streaming. We're going to be doing three days of 
music panels, workshops, and discussions. So we do these events in various cities. Uh, we've done them in Puerto Rico, Brooklyn, and a number of other outlets where we basically just put on panels, workshops, and educational type discussions for uh, the music industry base. You can visit our YouTube channel to check out all the live streams that we've been doing during these uh, challenging times. Um, you can learn more about what we've been doing during COVID, get helpful information on publishing, marketing, YouTube monetization, and tons more. Also, of course, don't forget to check out our Spotify profile and make sure to submit your music to our playlist. We love featuring new talent. Right now, we're looking for tracks for our exercise playlist and for our Spanish Heritage playlist. So feel free to go to our website um, to be able to submit and hope you like the curation. Until next time, thank you very much. Have a great one.